and welcome to Beer Stories for Private Equity. Join us for our weekly happy hour, tapping into 27 years of PE experience, one pint at a time. Beer Stories for Private Equity is powered by Monogram Group. On today's show, we're excited to be joined by Dave Swanson, one of the 12 founders of Interis Capital. And for Monogram Group, here's your host, Scott Markman. Please fasten your seatbelts. And we're live with Dave Swanson, a longtime friend and colleague and partner in crime and other things. Dave, welcome to the podcast. Good to be here, Scott. So I know from way back that you are a native son of Park Ridge, Illinois, also the home of the ex-First Lady Hillary Rodham Clinton. And my first question to you, Dave, is did you know her growing up? And if so, what was she like at Maine South High School? <laughs> uh, great question, Scott. Uh, uh, yes, never have had another zip code in my life here. So uh, Park Ridge, uh, the, the, whole, the whole stretch. Uh, Hillary is probably 20, 25 years older than I am. So oh, I didn't know I mean, that. I didn't know that. Otherwise, I wouldn't have asked the question, of course. Yeah, she uh, I think she was in uh, living comfortably in Arkansas when I was uh, when I was in high school at Maine South. So no overlap at all. And okay. no uh, and no real stories uh, to tell. So so it wasn't like sc- scratched on like the, you know, the boys locker room or something. <laughs> Hillary was here like nothing like that. No, it, if if uh, if it was there, it had been painted over years before I got there. Awesome. All right. Well, now we got that out of the uh, way. We can get into the serious stuff. But before we get into the serious stuff, true to our word here on Beer Stories for Private Equity, we are going to uh, crack open uh, the beer of our respective choices. Mine is a a gift from my son for the holidays. It's called Hublon Chouffe. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. It's an IPA of an illustration of an like a like an elf on, you know, like a Belgian elf on the on the uh, the label how about you dave what's your beer of choice well scott i've probably got several I, there's always the classic spotted cow out of wisconsin nice. a nice a nice farm ale but i'm not going to do that today always a, a fan of of dunkles but i'm not going to do that today but I also am going belgium with the delirium noel oh. which is their seasonal beer hard to find uh, Benny's uh, carries it mid mid late November, and it's usually sold out by. That would uh, be the, of course, the kissing cousin to Delirium Tremens, correct? Yes, correct, correct. I have stumbled. Uh, but that's going to be my choice. I have stumbled after a couple of those, as I recall. <laughs> <laughs> that's like what thirty percent beer. I mean, it's a very strong beer, very very yeah, strong. Yeah, it's. Beer. I, I think it's a ten percent. All right, we want to start with the uh, origin story in your your banking experience. So, you started in traditional banking in Continental Illinois in the eighties, and then found your way into financing mid market private equity deals in Heller. So, I mean, and back then that was like not even a thing, but barely. So, so why banking? Why private credit? And what was Heller all about? So for me, uh, first job out of college was at Continental Bank. Uh, I was in an operations uh, area in a management training program there. 
unlike a number of my friends in high school and college, I had no idea what I wanted to do out of college. I had friends at freshman year in high school, I want to be an eye doctor. And that's what they became, a, a friend in eighth grade who said, I'm going to be a chemical engineer. I didn't even know what that was. And he worked 45 years at Exxon. So uh, I graduated from college, got a job at uh, Continental Bank. What I, what I realized is things that I didn't want to do. I worked retail. I worked at Jewel uh, Foods uh, through high school and college, and I knew I did not want to be in retail. So didn't know what um, the end goal was going to be, but uh, by process of elimination, I started checking things off that I didn't want to do. Was at Continental Bank in the early 80s. It was the seventh largest bank in the country at that time. Uh, they had a little issue in the summer of 1982 with a, a little entity called Penn Square in Oklahoma. Oh, God. And, uh, <laughs> that, 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 didn't, uh, that didn't single-handedly bring down Continental Bank, but it, it sure didn't help. And uh, after that, every quarter, I think they laid off about 5% of the staff at Continental. So do the math, two years later, they were down 25 plus percent. So the writing was on the wall and I said, I need to move on. And there was an opening at Heller that I interviewed for. Heller was a long established finance company that did a lot of creative things for, for de over decades in finance. One of my early positions there was in the media lending group oh. where we would make loans to radio stations, TV stations, cable, outdoor advertising, newspapers, et cetera. And I was on the credit side there and I kind of liked it. So it evolved from there at Heller and ended up being at Heller for 11 years. Yep. yep. Now, so what was Heller like? I mean, you know, it was an established franchise when you joined there. I, you know, I think it had a reputation for being innovative in the late 70s, early 80s, traditional banks would make loans based on assets. You know, what, what's the balance sheet say we can, we can loan you? Heller was one of the early innovators of business value lending, of cash flow lending. We were in a group that made those types of loans with an early focus on private equity sponsors. And that category was really in its infancy then as well in the early 80s. So let's fast forward to, I believe, 1995-ish. And there are these 12 guys and maybe the corporate finance, private equity group, whatever it was labeled. And you kind of get this entrepreneurial itch. So why and how, you know, without divulging state secrets, you know, kind of what was the conversation about, you know, we may, as a group, want to kind of hang our shingle elsewhere and go get um, a capital base. You know, for me, it was Heller's a, a pretty good place to work. You know, I could stay here for years and years more. And there were some discussions with some of my coworkers about, uh, you know, what, what if we had an opportunity to do our own thing? I had never really thought about starting a business, being an entrepreneur, but it had an appeal to it. And, you know, the opportunity presented itself. We had some discussions with some financial backers and found one in Mass Mutual Life Insurance Company out of Springfield, Mass. They liked the sector. And we had a team 
Certainly there were risks. My wife and I had a number of conversations. For me, I felt like I was young enough that if it didn't work, could get back into the lending world and move on. Would I have done this at age 55? Probably not. So, you know, given the fact that private equity is really kind of a, a major dive into entrepreneurship, and oftentimes family businesses, and that's who the lower middle market, middle market kind of buys. A lot of times that first institutional capital. But this was 12 guys that really had no, unless you tell me otherwise, really no history and decided to kind of, you know, jokingly, I always call it to come to the dark side of entrepreneurship. And so there was no precedent, right? And all, and, and all of a sudden, you, in mass, you walk out one day and you hang your shingle. That's an unusual origin story. You know, you have the benefit of looking backwards 25-ish years and then that angle of things. So just any thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, yeah, certainly worked out better than I imagined and perhaps better than any of us imagined. I think one of the things that made it work for us culturally was we all came out of the same credit culture at Heller. So we weren't grabbing uh, two people from Heller and three people from Citibank and two people from Northern Trust that maybe had different philosophies on lending and credit. That helped a lot. And we all had worked together for, I think, uh, about an average of nine or 10 years before we started in Terry's. We started with financial backing from Mass Mutual which was critical, but we started out with zero loans on the books and all of us were originators. So the the first thing to do was to get the message out to the private equity sponsor community that we were in business. We'd love to work with you. A couple of us took the West Coast, a couple took the Southeast, you know, a couple took New York, Boston, Chicago area, upper Midwest, and spent a lot of time on the road, a lot of airplane miles. Once we started to build a portfolio and started to add some more people, we then we kind of took the original 12, started to have a little bit of specialties where one, one gentleman was the chief risk officer, another acted as the group president and then focused on operations and that sort of thing. But we all started out knocking on doors. Okay. So we on the monogram group side were unbelievably fortunate and a little bit serendipitously, if that's a word, to be connected to you guys. A neighbor of mine who has worked with you at Heller, and she knocks on my door one day, we're you know, washing the cars, and she says, you know, these guys that I've worked with for a while, sort of up and left and started a company. Maybe they could be a client of yours. I was like, great. So she puts us in touch with you, know, you and, and Brackett, and we kind of pitch the business, and we're kind of... Uh, there on day one, you know, design the logo and all that stuff. And something, there, there were two things ab- about sort of the agency's side of building the, the, the franchise, the brand, that were noteworthy even to this day. Number one, that you you guys decided that advertising and marketing were going to be a pillar of how and why you're going to be successful. Like you put a lot of money and emphasis on that, telling your story in a certain way. This is what we do, what we love, we're great at, and you should know us that way. And number two, there was always kind of a, a undercurrent of irreverence. And that, I, 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 this is my words, not yours, that you were trying to tweak the nose of the market a little bit. Is that accurate? Yeah, you know, Scott, you, you all were there day one, which was great. In fairness, we did reach out to a handful of marketing, advertising, branding companies and interviewed them. From our perspective, you guys were very responsive. 
and you were quick studies. We had a lot of face-to-face time with you and your team understanding what we were about and what our message was going to be. We weren't necessarily trying to be disrespectful, but we really wanted to show that we were different and that we were people-focused and relationship-focused and that we had been together as a team for 10 years and we were going to be together for years and years in the future. And that was a differentiator. And to your point, we, we were not a bank. We're not going to try to sell you treasury management services and open checking accounts and, and do other things that you don't want. You're a private equity sponsor. You're looking for debt to help you make an acquisition. That's all we do. We think we're really good at it. And we wanted to reinforce that message. So I'm going to expose a dirty little secret and embarrass myself. It took about two years before I had any freaking idea what private equity was. And, you know, here it is 27 years later, we've had 85 plus clients and I can probably under the influence sort of wax poetic about every aspect of private equity because you use something 85 times you learn it. The work we did for you guys over all those years until the purchase by GE, I, we could have never sold to anybody else because that's what you were looking for and you demanded and we met the need. But if I showed those same ads to 30 other private equity related clients, not one of them would have bought it. Yeah. Yeah. So you had no experience working with an agency. You know, what, what was that like? And any advice that you might give to somebody today working with any creative resource? Uh, you're right. We didn't. I certainly didn't have any experience working with an agency before. But having an agency that understands the, the point that you're trying to get across is is key. As a matter of fact, you know, I was sitting there and think that sometimes we didn't push the boundaries quite enough. And you sent us back and said, no, go, go a little bit further. And, and again, we just private equity or other ways, we don't have a lot of clients that say that to us. You know, we're always trying to reel it back in a little bit. And, you know, you guys, well, you know, 10% more, come back, let's go. All right, let's fast forward to 2005 ish. And you really established the franchise. You're, I'm sure, making terrific profit. And you're one or two in the league tables. And our good friends at GE uh, Capital come a calling and, and acquire the organization. But what was interesting was that um, unlike a vast majority of the GE universe at that time, the name in Terrace was retained and it becomes co-branded as GE Capital. And I heard this years later, maybe from you or somebody else, that there was only one other co-branded entity in 500 business units of GE, which was GE Universal, which is a movie studio. So anything you can share with that about how and why that business decision was made and retained for about 10 years? Again, three years in, they could have killed it and changed their mind. Why did it stick around all those years? You know, they really did what GE had done traditionally and did well traditionally. They had their business model and their process and their approval process and stuck Heller's team into that box. And I think three or four years later, a meaningful percentage of those Heller professionals had moved on. They didn't like the way that, uh, you know, it felt. And I think GE took that to heart and learned some lessons. And when they had an opportunity to buy us, you know, one of the things that was key to us was to continue as much as we could to make our own credit decisions. And we were I think we were number one in the league tables at that time when they purchased us. GE was two. So bringing those two entities together was uh, 
was quite powerful and GE got it. And to your point, I think with the exception of NBC or NBC Universal, Antares is the only brand that GE kept and didn't just change to GE, GE Capital. So that was great that they did that and very respectful of us and our business and our senior management team. Excellent. So let's fast forward to 2015 and, uh, you know, a couple <clears throat> rungs up the ladder. GE decides to just, you know, sort of dismantle the GE Capital unit and get out of the credit business. Um, and you were among the first operating units kind of sold off and the Canadian Pension Plan Investment Board buys the operating unit and I believe still operates them today or still owns them today. So what was it like to a little bit, you know, get the band back together again and reestablish the Ontario's brand as a kind of a standalone entity? Uh, it was uh, it was refreshing. G- GE exited their capital businesses due to a number of issues. So to start fresh with CPPIB was great. One of the top 10 or in the top 10 largest retirement fund, pension funds in the world. So they turned out to be a great partner for us. And they they liked the business that we had built and the, the tenure that we had, the relationships with hundreds and hundreds of private equity sponsors. And that was not a sector that they were very strong in, in that middle market, certainly in the U.S. lending. We were a good good fit for them. And I imagine when it came to wanting and dining clients that you had access to the best hockey tickets in North America. <laughs> uh, next question. <laughs> All right. Well, so let's fast forward five years, 2020. Dave and Dave's wife decide that it's time to head out for uh, Western pastures, et cetera, et cetera. And you kind of decide to go into some degree of retirement. Um, what, how's it gone? You know, it's, we're th- three or four years into it. There was a quote that I had heard in my early 50s. And uh, the, the quote was, 60-year-old originators are like baby pigeons. You know they have to exist, but nobody's ever seen one. And, <laughs> and, and, and I, I, I like that quote. And there was a, a, a ring of truth to that quote. And as I approached that magical age, my decision was, oh, it's time to let the next generation step in. My scheduled retirement was two months into COVID. And it turned out to be a good time to ride off into the sunset. We built a house out in Colorado, doing a lot of traveling, all those great retirement things. But I do miss in the office or out meeting with sponsors, you're surrounded by a lot of really smart people. And when you're retired, you're not necessarily surrounded by uh, certainly the quantity of smart people. Well, it certainly beats being called baby pigeon or grandpa. Um, <laughs> Amen. All right. As we wrap up, um, two last questions. Number one, who is the one Chicago sports legend that you'd most love to have dinner with and why? And Michael Jordan is not an answer. Interesting question. Um, uh, I'm going to go with Stan Makita. Oh, Stan the man. A great center for the Blackhawks uh, in the 60s and 70s. You know, he came across as a humble guy, a loyal guy. He yeah. I think he played his full hockey career with the Blackhawks. And so 
I, I'm going to go with Stan Makita. Very nice. He is revered here in Chicago, and as a uh, Blackhawk season ticket holder, um, I see his number up at the rafters uh, whenever I'm there. And the last question, and most important question of the entire discussion, since you and I have a 25-year history, love and shared appreciation for dark spirits and cigars. Any recos of each right now? Uh, you know, my my recommendations for each are are probably what they have, were 25 years ago. As far as uh, bourbons go, uh, and Angel's Envy and cigars, uh, always like the uh, Fuente Hemingway short story. Oh, um, classic. S- smooth, smooth, and you're still not trying to work through it an hour and a half later trying to rewrite the thing. <laughs> All right, I will share with our audience and you. Thank you, sir, as always, so much for uh, being a great uh, client, a great friend, and uh, look forward to uh, sharing more of the last subject matter with you for years to come. Excellent. Thank you, Scott. From all of us at Monogram Group, thanks for tuning in to Beer Stories for Private Equity, Episode 8. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button, and you'll be notified as we release new episodes. Please check out the show notes in the description from today's episode. Our email is podcast at monogramgroup.com. Feel free to email us with any comments or questions, and we'll try to answer them in our next episode.